0: Again, welcome to Rogue Table Talks. I think this is number eight. Uh, this is your host, Mike Sherman. Chad is away on vacation. Actually, he's not on vacation. Uh, he's teaching somewhere uh, in Ohio, I believe. Uh, so I'm sure he's working very hard uh, for the kingdom. Uh, and so I'm here alone. I'm not alone, actually. Two wrong statements in a row. Jacob's here, uh, and occasionally Jacob, the mysterious Jacob. Does he really exist? Yes, he does. Um, Jacob, our producer. So I might shout out to him if he wants to. Know. Shout out, Jacob. Hey. There's Jacob. Okay. So we are uh, in our Rogue Table Talks. Uh, we what we do here is we we start with the teaching, with uh, uh, the weekend teaching of at Calvary Church. Not. It's just kind of a jumping-off point. We might. Uh, we don't use that as a as our outline, and we we wade in from this. This starting point into various issues of theology or culture or uh, life or, or, or whatever. And so we are in the book of Judges. That's our, our series. Israel is in the promised land, but all is not well. And we've talked about that. This is a, uh, our third or I think our fourth uh, podcast in this book. And uh, I think we can link it again. There's a whole story video on Judges. We gave the the flow of history and where we are, redemptive history, we kind of t- dealt with that in more detail a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think number six, so that might be helpful if you're just starting now. It kind of sets the table uh, for, the, for the rest of the book. Uh, and there is a cycle, as we've seen in Judges, of Israel is, has peace, they're disobedient, they drift away, there's bondage, they cry out, God raises up a judge, there's deliverance, and there's peace and disobedience, and so on. The cycle cycle repeats. Last week, we looked at the first judge uh, in the book, uh, Othniel, or Othniel. Uh, I think it's Othniel. And this week, we're going to start with a judge named Ehud. And uh, here is the cycle restarting, Judges 3.12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So they've already been delivered once. The cycle repeats. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So I'm going to use this jumping off point, uh, this story, uh, to talk in Chad's Chad's absence, take advantage of his absence, to talk about uh, what some people might call the embarrassing parts of the Bible, or the troubling parts, or disturbing parts. Uh, Chad would be fine talking about all of this, um, but I am talking about it in his absence, because here we are. Uh, And in the process... We'll talk about God's wrath, God's justice, God as king, the fear of the Lord, and why understanding these things is necessary to really understand God's grace, God's mercy, the miracle of redemption, all of these things that we talk about in the New Testament. Uh, I think we sometimes can uh, act as if all of those things are really over, or do they're just Old Testament ideas, and, and that's not, not really true. First, before we jump in there, let, let's quickly complete the cycle of Judges uh, with this story so we can talk about these things. Uh, is verse 15. Uh, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. And the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So Eglon is the king of Moab that God brings in uh, as, a, as an agent of his judgment and correction uh, over Israel, that they are under his rule for 18 harsh years. The Israelites cry out. God raises up Ehud, this, this judge, uh, to deliver them. And the Israelites send him with tribute to the king. And so just, just to reiterate something that's going on there that happens over and over in the book— it says, first, the Lord gave Ehud, king of Moab, power over Israel. And then it says, the Israelites cried out, and the Lord gave them a deliverer. So it's God who's acting. Uh, it is God who's acting to correct Israel, to bring discipline and judgment and justice to them. Uh, and it, it is God who is acting to bring deliverance, to raise up a judge, uh, and to fight back against the oppressive king, uh, And so this happens over and over again, and I think that's key to understanding the book. And we'll come back to that idea, I think, a number of times, uh, that this is God's judgment being done, this is God's justice, this is God's deliverance, and as we've said uh, previously, but it bears repeating, this is a different uh, part of redemptive history, and God's not likely to use us uh, as his agent of justice or judgment uh, that, you know, justice and judgment was poured out on Christ on the cross. Uh, unless we have some official, uh, law enforcement or law keeping capacity, uh, that, uh, Christ brings justice and judgment calls out from there with grace to us. And final judgment is in, is in the future. And justice is mine. saith the Lord is a, is a, is a verse from the new Testament. So it's important for us to remember that we're not likely to be this violent deliverer uh, that we see here in the Old Testament. And in the story, in I'm not gonna read the story, uh, but it's a pretty juicy one. Jacob, have you read the story? I have. Yeah, it's it's an amazing, perhaps slash disturbing amount of detail. And the detail is a little disturbing. Uh, and, uh, but it's a detailed account about Ehud. He gives tribute to the king. He starts back, uh, heads back. He's, he's been raised up to be a judge or a deliverer. And he, he brings tribute. He doesn't do anything. He's on his way back. And he comes to these stones at Gilgal, which could be the memorial stones, uh, that God gave them as he helped them over the Jordan river and their victory at Jericho, uh, generations. And at the, at that point, uh, he perhaps remembered his mission, his vision or whatever. He turned back and had this large knife strapped to his thigh. He pretended to have a secret for the king. And when they were alone, he killed them. And again, there's a fair amount of detail there. I'll leave that for you to read. Uh, and then when Ehud has victory, uh, uh, over the king, he escapes, and then God gives him victory over the Moabites to liberate liberate Israel. And in the process, 10,000 Moabite soldiers are killed, and Israel has peace for 80 years. Uh, So the detail in the story is pretty unique, and I'm going to let you uh, explore the details uh, in Judges 3. Uh, But the king not only dies, but we'll suffice it to say he dies a humiliating death. And one of the things that's happening here is the humiliation of israel the sin of israel is followed by the humiliation of israel and it's followed by the humiliation of eglon the king who's oppressing them and all of this foreshadows the humiliation of christ who who pays the penalty for our sin um and so let's kind of dig in there a little deeper what's going on there uh, what's going on in this book and I, as the as we will see the book, it gets worse uh, as the cycle descends. Uh, And what does it have to do with grace? Um, And as I've said, for many, these are sort of embarrassing parts of the Bible or parts that are maybe puzzling to us. And maybe they don't fit our view of Christianity, of Christ. uh, And this, this sometimes feeds into an erroneous view that God the Father is the angry one, uh, the angry king, and Christ the Son is the more gracious one, or perhaps that God has changed and he's not like this anymore, he's adapted, this was his old way and he now has a new way. Um, Some uh, progressive believers or perhaps skeptics uh, of the reliability of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible would say these stories aren't true, that they reflect the conception of God that the Old Testament writers had, and it was understandable because they lived in violent times, And but we know better now, and so on. There's all sorts of different ways to sort of explain away or to talk around the violence uh, and the messiness uh, of these stories that we're looking at. And I think all of this is because we don't know what's going on here. The stories do seem disturbing, uh, and it's easy to hope maybe that God's not going to do anything this disturbing, and so we have to explain them away. Uh, and I think certainly they don't fit a modern notion of Jesus that is meek and mild, the little children come to me, all who are weary come to me, etc. Jesus said those things. Um, and it's, you know, if, we, if this is our conception of Jesus, uh, it, if we don't look too close into the New Testament, we can believe he never said or did disturbing things. Uh, and so there's some of the New Testament that must be explained away also. But if we look closely, we see that Jesus did say and do some things that don't fit that picture at all that are quite uh, disturbing. And I don't know if I can uh, aden- uh, definitively answer all of these questions, and we'll probably revisit them next week and in the weeks following, but we're going we're gonna to dive in here. So what's going on here, what, and what does it have to do with grace? What does it have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with redemption? Um, and first, I think something we've said before, but it bears repeating, that grace breaks the cycle. That the cycle of Israel having peace and then wandering away from God uh, and, and drifting away from God, this painful breaking uh, of the cycle is something that God does. He does it in perhaps judgment. He does it in perhaps justice. But he does it in grace. Uh, because what he could do is he could just walk away. Uh, You know, he could just, you know, wash his hands of the whole deal and say, okay, listen, they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. Uh, I'm just going to walk away. And and instead, he takes gracious action to keep them, and sometimes to keep us, from wandering farther and farther away, uh, from inflicting more and more harm to ourselves and and to, to others. And so, In many ways, the least gracious thing God could do would be to just let our plan B, let Israel's plan B, have complete success. That have there be no consequences for wandering away from God, uh, and therefore no crying out, and therefore no, no deliverance. And so God brings this nation to defeat Israel, a different nation over and over in their history. And you know, is this justice? Is this judgment? Uh, or is it grace? You know, is it justice or is it mercy? And I think it can be both. That God's judgment and justice might also be gracious and merciful. And we'll we'll expand on that in a little bit more. But before, before we go deeper there, we probably need to remember something else that we can often forget, and that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That Israel is not supposed to be in this situation, you know, they have already not done what God asked them to do in taking possession of the promised land. They've not done what God has uh, told them to do, and they've drifted away in a more meta sort of way. The world is broken because Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, and things are not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, and this continues to be true, of course, Judges is a picture of what happens when we live... Uh, as broken people in a broken world, but it's really just one picture uh, of that. And it's, so it's, it's, it's important to remember that as you look at passages and judges and other places in the Bible, particularly the in Old Testament, that what's there isn't necessarily recommended, that it's not necessarily God's best plan or plan A, because we spoil plan A. Uh, and, and we continue to spoil plan A. And so we make sometimes a very difficult and costly plan B necessary. Uh, and at least God's plan B is necessary for it to be redeemed. And I think it's important to remember that he's not under obligation to redeem us. But he acts to redeem us uh, in, in grace. Sometimes that action, because it's just, um, we, have, we have issues with it. Uh, we have problems with it. Um, and I think it's, it's easy for us to minimize or forget or gloss over these parts, uh, of the Bible just for that very reason. I, I think sometimes it makes us a little bit, uh, uncomfortable. And so Israel does evil. God could just walk away. He could just wash his hands. He could start over with someone else, but he's true to his word. He's true to his promise. And so he breaks the cycle but the, men, the medicine is harsh. An enemy nation comes, rules harshly as judgment and as grace. Uh, and the people cry out, and God brings the deliverer. Uh, and the plan of Israel being the promised land is then restored, and everything seems good again, except it's not quite good because um, this isn't plan A. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. They do evil again, and the cycle repeats. And so one of the things that we can take from that This whole book, again, is that God is still king, that he's still true to his promises, that he's still the one who redeems, he's still the ones who will redeem, even when it seems he is nowhere to be found. Uh, Because when you read the book of Judges, there's not a lot of worship going on, there's not a lot of praise going on, there's not a lot of good works and good deeds. It's this downward spiral when the world is profoundly broken, and yet God is there. God is present. God acts to break the cycle. So I think it's something to remember for us as we, as we live in a world that's profoundly broken. And we can wonder, does God even notice? Uh, does God even care? Um, is he still active? And we can see uh, in this book that he is, he does notice. He still cares. He is active. Uh, he is still king. Um, and a remedy is is promised Um, and the remedy may take longer uh, and we may sometimes take issue with it like we don't we're not sure if god's remedy uh, is the right remedy and we want to enact our own remedy Uh, but the cycle repeats because god is true to his promise to redeem his people Um, you know he doesn't cause them to wander the cycle repeats because he keeps bringing them back And so that's, you know, in a profound way, that's why there's a cycle, because the world is broken, the people are broken, and God keeps bringing them back. And that's why there might be a cycle to our own life, that God doesn't leave us alone, that God doesn't just let us do our own thing forever with impunity, because that would destroy us. Um, And in fact, here in this passage, Israel finally receives 80 years of peace after God uh, has delivered them through Ehud, and we can pray for peace, we can pray for God's intervention, but maybe fail to, to realize or to appreciate that the enactment of that peace might be messy, that uh, the enactment of that justice might come through some sort of judgment or discipline. Um, and I don't think I fully appreciate this. I don't think we, as, as God's people... Uh, fully appreciate this, because I don't think we wrestle with how profoundly broken the world is in a real biblical, redemptive way. We complain about it. You know, I pray most mornings for God's will to be done, for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know that I always think about, well, how is that going to happen? And I think there's two two sort of answers to that question. In one sense, it's it's with when when Jacob and I... And the rest of God's people, Calvary Church, the rest of the church, act in ways that are redemptive, that he will work through his people in ways big and small to bring redemption, to bring his will to be done, to bring his kingdom on earth in in a real sort of way where people are helped and where people are ministered to, uh, where, where grace is received and grace is given, And that's one way in which that prayer, that God answers that prayer. When we say, God's will be done, his kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. Um, And then more fundamentally, that'll happen someday in the future. Uh, When the book of Revelation tells us it's going to happen in a very violent way, that fully and finally, when God's will is done on earth and his kingdom has come, it's going to come in an apocalyptic way. That's why we call it the apocalypse. And that's a hopeful word in the Bible. The apocalypse is something we are supposed to look forward to biblically in redemptive history, and it's a scary word in our culture. Uh, and it literally means the inbreaking of God's reality into this reality, God's, God's perfect reality into this broken one, and then the broken one is done away with and the perfect one remains. It's this inbreaking of God's um, kingdom that we pray for Uh, and so one thing foreshadows the other, uh, God changes us, changes, works through his people to bring his kingdom, bring justice. We're not, you know, we're not Ehud, we're not stabbing the king in the gut, uh, but we're bringing justice and grace in a different way. Uh, and we don't have to be God's agent of judgment because Christ came to, to accept our judgment and offers it to everyone. Um, And so God graciously breaks the cycle, but he acts in justice. And he does so to both correct Israel when they do evil, to bring justice against the oppressing nation that God has used uh, to correct Israel. And that's what we often pray for, but we want it to happen in a sort of nice way. We want it to happen in a very clean, very civilized, very first world, very educated sort of way where we all just maybe talk together or whatever, but the, you know, this, this idea that, you know, can't God do it different? Can't he do it better? Can he do it nicer? Aren't these, these stories are violent. They're, they're harsh. You, 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 you you're with me on this, Jacob? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's troubling to some people and some people don't believe the Bible because of this. Don't want to believe in God because of this or want to believe that God is fundamentally, the God of the New Testament is fundamentally different from the God of the Old Testament where the Bible, as it is written, and given to us, gives us no uh, cause to believe that. And just that we're uncomfortable with it is the reason we don't want to, 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 to believe it. And somehow we think, you know, if we're nice to everyone, everyone will be nice to us. It's sort of the kingdom, the kindergarten, you know, motto, but that's not really true. Uh, it's not really true even for us. Just because someone's nice to me doesn't mean I'm going to be nice to them. Like I'm not even always the, the best judge of what nice is and what somebody really, really needs. And, and then beyond even that, there's real evil in the world that must be opposed. And that's why we pray that God's will be done, his kingdom to come, that ultimately God will overturn that evil. But it will happen in a violent way. Sometimes it has to happen in a violent way. And that's we see it in revelation uh and but we that's of course a new testament thing and of course jesus is going to be one of the enactors the chief enactor of that judgment so in contradiction of the idea that jesus is the nice son who comes to die on the cross and and bear the penalty of the harsh father that the triune God is acting in all of these things, that Jesus is, is integral to God's action in the Old Testament, that you know Jesus doesn't, isn't just born in Bethlehem and that's when he begins, that he's the eternal God, co-eternal triune God. So he's acting in the Old Testament, and he's, of course, acting to bring judgment in the New Testament as well. And that shouldn't surprise us. If we look in the New Testament at much of the teachings of Jesus and we really comprehensively read them, he says a lot about judgment. You know, many of his parables are about coming judgment, preparing for judgment, uh, being ready to enter into the wedding party or the banquet. And those that are not ready are cast into the outer darkness, that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, or they're, you know, into the eternal fire. And um, I think that's easy for us to, to forget that or to forget the last part of the story where Jesus is really talking about the eternal justice that is to come. Um, And I think that upsets our apple cart because we want to sit and say of God's actions, well, that doesn't seem right. Uh, As if we know better than God, what is right and what is just and what is good. Um, In fact, one of the, one verse that, that comes to mind, Matthew 10, 28, this is Jesus talking. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See what happens when Chad's not here. I just go right into, I go right into hell, uh, so to speak, manner of speaking. Um, and I think when I was young, uh, a young believer, I just assumed Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but, but cannot kill the soul. So don't be afraid of those who will uh, maybe kill you for your faith, if you have to die for your faith. Rather, be afraid of the devil, who can destroy the soul and body in, in hell. But that's not what he's saying. That the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell is God. That we, our, our fear should be of God, not of the devil. We're never told to fear the devil. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be, the, be afraid of the, of the king who has both our soul and our body. And... They will be destroyed in hell if we do not grab hold of the grace and mercy that Christ offers on the cross that he can offer because he accepted God's judgment and God's wrath in our place. And that's, I think, what do you think of that, Jacob? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's sort of like, oh, that's heavy. I don't want to think about that in that way but it's clear even in most of the english translations the one who can destroy both soul and body the one is capitalized is referring to god and that's i think how we misunderstand grace or minimize grace that there unless we understand god's wrath god's judgment then we don't really understand grace because grace isn't just, oh, it'll be fine, don't worry about it, um, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal. It's a deal way bigger than we can fix. Grace is, grace from that. that grace from what? Grace instead of what? Grace instead of eternal judgment. Because that's what I deserve. And I, it's one thing to know that theologically. It's another thing to know it, oh, that's what grace is. That's what I deserve. And I think a lot of the parables of Jesus kind of point us in that direction. There's the guy who owed the king an unpayable amount. You know, if you, you know, if you do the math, it's a certain number of denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. And it turns out to, you know, if you take $10 an hour and, you know, it's, it's many billions of dollars. It's, you know, you could hit the Powerball, and you still, it's an unpayable amount. And that's our situation where, you know, in order for us to get to a place where the books are balanced between us and God, I owe God an unpayable amount. And that amount is wiped clean because Jesus dies for me. That was wiped clean. And so if I really grapple with that, I really understand it. Now when Jacob hurts me and in the parable owes me a couple thousand dollars, who am I? to say, I can't forgive that, Dad. That's, that's, that just means I don't understand the first forgiveness. And I think that's what we do when we don't really grapple with gods is that he's the king, that he is perfectly just, that he's 100% holy, that we deserve judgment and get grace instead. And when I really grapple with that, then I'm, how can I withhold grace from somebody else? That means I don't really understand it. It means I didn't really get it. That's why forgiveness is sort of basic Christianity 101. it's basic like you can't be a Christian live as a Christian and be unforgiving it's a contradiction we often do it uh but you know we are told to then forgive and be forgiven as we forgive because if I persistently refuse to forgive you I'm in a place that's a contradiction of Christian I don't know I, I've forgotten I've forgotten what happened for me Right? Who am I to withhold forgiveness from somebody else? And I just don't think we think of it that way. I don't think we, right? We don't think of it that way. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, forgive and forget. Yes. Uh, or I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Do we actually forget? Yeah, I don't think we forget. I, yeah, I don't think we can. I mean, if, you know, if if you walked up and hit me in the face, uh, I could forgive you. But if you walked up again i'd probably duck right it's just how we're wired and in fact that's what makes forgiveness so hard because we don't we don't forget and so i have to forgive again and i have to get mad and i forgive again i get hurt i get have to forgive again and it's like it's impossible we think and that's really the, the christian life that yeah it's only possible as christ enables me to do that um but this really this and so the old testament writ large and the book of Judges, to some extent, is a, is a backdrop for all of that. It's necessary context, without which I don't really understand why Christ had to die on the cross. Like, why did he have to die? Well, that's why. Because God's justice is a really big deal. And if you're familiar with, you know, the line with line the Witch, in the Wardrobe, we you know, when Aslan has to go to die on the stone table— and I forget, Lucy is like, why do you, can't you just like reverse the magic or something she says in the book? And he's like, reverse the magic. You know, that's unthinkable. And we're not told how it's unthinkable or why it's unthinkable. And I think that's, you know, we it's like this with God. I mean, um, just overlook injustice? No. You know, some a price has to be paid. Uh, a price will be paid. A price has been paid. So Jesus has died and offered the price for the, for the reversal of all injustice, if we'll just accept it. All injustice done to us and all injustice we've done and all injustice we've done to God. Uh, and if I don't accept it, then I will have to bear that price uh, forever. That's, that's, you know, when Jesus speaks of hell, that's what he's saying. It's, there's a choice. Uh, grace is offered, but the backdrop of grace is judgment. And if I don't really rap, grapple with that, the justice of that judgment, um, then I don't really understand grace. And then I probably am pretty stingy with it because I somehow feel like, um, I've minimized grace somewhat, or I get some grace cause I'm basically a good person or I didn't need to really get, I don't, I didn't owe the king an unpayable amount in the parable sense that I don't know that I really believe that. And if I really believe it, then I'm like, Oh wow, I need to be gracious to everyone else. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the, the the necessary connection between the old and, and the New Testament. That these all these redeemers are sort of prefiguring or pointing towards Jesus, uh, who is the the ultimate enactor of justice. And that's another thing for us important for us to remember that we want to enact justice. We see injustice, uh, and we often do it. We often do it very poorly. Um, and you know, partly here, it's important to remember. God is raising up agents of he, God is acting, so He's raising up agents of His judgment, agents of His redemption, and He's probably not doing that in our, you know, because Christ has died on the cross. So redemption is offered to everyone. Justice ultimately is available to everyone. Uh, we might be called to act against an injustice in the world, but not as God's agent of judgment, not to inflict punishment. I mean, unless you're in a law enforcement capacity or something, and that's a different. That's a different deal. God's delegated authority uh, is delegated to nations to, to keep the peace and to, and to keep justice. But, and there's a couple of reasons for that, is I'm not going to get justice right all the time. What offends me is not always, sometimes what offends me, like the Bible story might offend me, but it's obviously justice. I'm the problem there. Uh, so I'm not always going to get justice right. Um, and then often we, we live in an age of outrage, I think and our you know we're outraged at the injustice of the world and that what we do is we condemn people on Twitter right and which of course is just another way of saying what we do is nothing <laughs> because that does nothing to help anybody who's living under injustice. Peter, er, uh, Jacob's our social media guy so he knows what I'm talking about there. That's like half of social media right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. And it is is—it is that. It's self-inflation. It's, I know what's just. I'm going to tell you that I'm a just person by decrying this injustice. And it might really be an injustice, but often we do it in sort of an angry, downhill, judgmental sort of way, and it doesn't help anyone, even if I'm right. So I might get justice wrong, but then the way I'm going to correct it might not do anything. I'm not really correcting it at all. I'm not acting. Uh, to in any way at all. And so I think that's another thing that's helpful for us to consider is how do I act for justice in the world? If I'm not going to be, you know, E-hood and strapping a, a, a dagger to my thigh and stabbing somebody in the gut, I'm giving away part of the story, but that's the only part. You know, there's there's also, also juicy stuff in there, uh, literally. Um, so what does it mean? And it it might mean, it might mean, forgiving, actually. Or it might mean doing what I can, because what we often do is, whether we send out an angry tweet or not, um, that's then we don't do anything. And so we might, there shouldn't be poor people in the world, and we decry that, and but we don't go and feed them, or we don't go and, you know, take food to a food pantry, or something that actually could help someone to alleviate some part of injustice in some small way. Um, And that might be what God is calling us to do. Um, So we're not God. We can't correct the injustices of the world, but we can be a part of that. And then we can also seek honestly, like where am I the cause of an injustice? And what, what, you know, am I causing injustice on on someone else? Um, Because we should long for it. Uh, We should long for justice. Um, And that's why we pray. You know, that's why Jesus tells us to pray, you know, daily for God's will to be done, for his kingdom to come, that ultimately we long for his justice and his correction as redemption. Um, And, you know, why can't God do it in a nicer way? Why can't God do it in a more polite way? Well, we don't ask that at the cross, because there's nothing about the cross that's polite or nice. And, you know, that's why you see the humiliation of Christ as really, instead of our humiliation, he's being humiliated for us he's being degraded he's suffering he's dying and all of that is necessary to pay the price for my sin and then to bring us to and i'll close with this passage from ephesians 1 this miracle of grace of redemption of adoption of being in christ you know ephesians 1 3 through 6 praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So that's God, the father that's the enactor of justice in the, in the old Testament, he has chosen up in eternity past to be, uh, to be given every spiritual blessing, to be adopted, to be united with Christ, knowing the price that have to, would have to be paid to bring that to pass. And that's the miracle of grace. That's the miracle of redemption. That's the miracle of, of, of being in Christ and being adopted in Him. And that's the miracle of the gospel. Uh, and so uh, our encouragement is to, to delve deeply into that and to preach the gospel to ourselves, all of the gospel, even our need for it every day and then to enact the gospel and be agents of grace in the world. And I'll leave, leave you with that. I think Chad's back next week. Until then, uh, we will see you at the next Rogue Table Talk. Thanks for listening to Rogue Table Talk's A Calvary Church Media Productions Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.